0: Uh, So I imagine it's not necessary to uh, justify the relevance of our topic, this topic today. The family is under withering attack almost everywhere in Western culture. Uh, Beyond there's the no-fault divorce, routine sexual immorality, one-click pornography, Holocaustal abortion. They have all plagued us in recent decades. But now, has more recently been added, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, gender reaffirmation surgery. Some social scientists predict the traditional family will simply disappear. Don't bet on it. The family is a creational norm and as such it's a vital part of the cosmic OS. The cosmic operating system. God's operating system for the universe. The family can be no more eliminated than gravity can be eliminated, though it can be assaulted with results just as catastrophic as the attempt to violate the law of gravity. Since the family is a creational norm, a foundational component of the cosmos, that's where we need to begin. Uh, Just as we discussed creational economics last year, we start with the family at creation this year. Why? Well, it's hard to grasp, but you should always begin at the beginning. For Christians, that's with creation. So in this brief time, I'm going to enumerate three creational truths, particularly relevant to the family. Then I'll mention four concrete contemporary assaults on the family and how the creational family has to combat those assaults. First, marriage is the foundational Christian institution. The church and the family are vital divine institutions, but they are post-fall institutions. Uh, I'm sorry, the state and the family are. They are post-fall institutions. Had there never been sin, there would never have been a state, and perhaps not even a church, at least not as we know it. The family is rooted in the creation order. It's not an inherent part of God's redemptive plan, though in a fallen world, God can and often does use it for that purpose. In other words, the family can lead us to the gospel, but the family is very good even apart from the gospel, and would have been very good apart from the gospel. Second, God created humanity in his own image, but he didn't create just one, a male or a female. A single individual wouldn't have fully reflected God's image. This is a very important theological truth I'm making. Man and woman both, in complement, extensively reflect God's image. A man alone or a woman alone can't fully display the image of God. In marriage, humanity most spectacularly images God. Adam must have Eve. Eve must have Adam. Together they embody and exhibit the divine image as fully as a creature can. In the words of James B. DeYoung, God could have made a thousand males for Adam, yet he would not have fully achieved his own image and its internal diversity. Without that full picture, his own being would have gone unknown and unknowable. Only a woman, not another man, could complete the divine design for humankind. Isn't that beautiful? We biblical Christians are sometimes accused of embracing the superiority of men. That charge is frankly and ironically false. If anything, we often recognize the superiority of women in many matters of life. I'm reminded of uh, the mother who asked her five-year-old daughter what she learned in Sunday school. And the young girl replied, Well, I learned that God made Adam and then looked him over and said, Hmm, I think I can do better than that. (laughs) Women are often more faithful, more nurturing, more thoughtful, more creative, more insightful, more provident, and more sacrificial. We simply recognize that men are superior in a few specific ways. Risk-taking, military combat, church eldership, physical athletics, and so forth. To argue against sexual egalitarianism, as we should, is not to argue for across-the-board superiority or inferiority. It's to argue for both superiority and inferiority for both men and women, one or the other, depending on the calling and the situation. Third, therefore marriage is the creational default. Marriage is the creational default. Man and woman were created for marriage. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Now those are some of the most staggering words in the Bible. Have you ever read things in the Bible, and as you thought about them, you said, wait a minute, that is truly extraordinary, that's remarkable. Well, it's not good for man to be alone. But I mean, didn't Adam have God? He wasn't alone, was he? Well, in a distinct sense, he was. And I would say very boldly that God alone is not enough for the man. Men, you weren't made to be alone. You're not complete in yourself. You're missing an important part. That missing part is the woman. God calls her, we say in English, a help meet. It really means a worthy completer, a counterpart. You men, we men lack qualities, spiritual qualities, intellectual qualities, emotional qualities, physical, that a woman can give you, that she was made to give you. She provides for you what you lack in yourself. When Adam encountered Eve, and I love it was put this way by a noted theologian, when Adam encountered Eve, he quite literally met his match. (laughs) His match. The woman completes the man. She gives him what he cannot have in himself. In an era that pits women against men, uh, that that transforms them into rivals, wives are called to be the opposite of man's rival. She's called to be her husband's friend and companion, his closest friend and companion, in fact. But how has modern culture assaulted this creational order? Uh, many ways, but I'll, as I close here, I'll highlight four of them this morning. <coughs> First is the reduction of sex from a creational fact to a cultural fact. The reduction of sex from a creational fact to a cultural fact. The theologian John Frame once said that creation is what God makes and culture is what we make. The problem comes when humans assume they are the original creators rather than the culture creators under his authority. Human sexuality is an example of creation, not culture. In this sense, sexuality is ontological. Don't you love these wonderful philosophical terms? By ontology, I mean being. Man was created as a sexual being. Sex isn't, therefore, a development of his ingenuity or his or her intellect or diligence or biological evolution. It's not a cultural or social construction. Sex, sex, male or female, and there's no third option, is hardwired into humanity's very being. Man can no more replace his or her sex than he can alter his or her mind. Or conscience. Now, of course, humans can tamper with and diminish and heighten sex, mind, and conscience and many other creational realities, right? After all, what sin but a perversion of God's good creation? Transgender operations can tamper with the physical traits of God-created human sexuality. Just as man can efface but never erase the conscience, so he can modify sex bodily but not ontologically. Moderns at war over the meaning of marriage often see sex as culture, not creation. Sex is engineered reality. You can make sexes just as you can make video games or pecan pies. The term gender, once a perfectly good term, is now deployed to denote a species of sexuality that each of us creates and changes almost at will were all sexual artists, proving what one writer called, quote, the unlimited malleability of human sexuality, close quote. Ever since humanity's primal sin of rebellion against God's order, men and women have bumped up against the constraints of creation and wished to burst them. Gender as social construction is one such striking attempt. Homosexuality, women military combatants, Sex reassignment surgery are all examples of a contra-creational worldview. Rod Rear was quite right, therefore, when years ago he said that same-sex marriage is not just a social revolution, but a cosmological revolution. It's man's attempt to reverse and re-engineer God's creation. The Bible takes it as a given that humanity as male and female are interdependent but distinct as creational realities in which we should delight and for whose gift we should worship God. This is God's creational order. It's the antithesis of the postmodern sexual disorder. Sex is not created. Second, this is the pervasive problem of homosexuality. The pervasive problem of homosexuality. As acceptable as it has become in our culture, it is never acceptable to God's creation or Christianity. This is not a case of homophobia or gay bashing. It's simply a case of fidelity to the Bible and to the cosmic operating system. Homosexuality is almost as old as autonomy itself. It was pervasive in the ancient world. In Romans 1, the apostle Paul describes homosexuality as the ultimate sin in the culture, at least in some sense. Now, interestingly, Paul doesn't argue that God will judge a society for homosexuality. Of course he will. Rather, Paul ominously writes that the pervasiveness of homosexuality in a society is itself evidence of God's judgment. We probably should think about the implications of that, particularly as we sit here near San Francisco. Today, even the evangelical church has developed an ambivalence about homosexuality and such categories as same-sex attraction. You've all heard of this? A friend of mine, a young man, godly young man, says, you know, I think we ought to change that to same-sex lust. I say, yeah, that's a good idea. When somebody says, oh, our church believes it's okay for same-sex attraction, I say, oh, you, so same-sex lust is okay. That's basically what we're talking about. One fact is abundantly clear, always and everywhere in the Bible when homosexuality is mentioned, always and everywhere it is depicted as sinful, even reprehensible. It's not the misuse of homosexuality that the Bible forbids, but homosexuality itself. You ever notice in the Bible there's a long list of specific prohibitions about what we call heterosexuality, man and woman sexuality? Oh, huge list of prohibitions. There's not a long list of prohibitions relating to homosexuality. You know why? Because there's no situation whatsoever in which it would be permissible. None. When today's church leaders invite, uh, accept rather, or soft-pedal homosexuality, they invite God's hot displeasure. Greg L. Bonson writes, Certainly, disciples of Jesus Christ and the overseers in his church should be far removed from any attempt in teaching that consents to homosexuality or effaces its sinful character. However, modern churchmen have instead, he writes, learned to mirror the trends of the world. We would soberly conclude that modern society, as well as the modern church, are both dangerously close to divine retribution as they continue to tolerate and approve of homosexuality. Gay liberation, he writes, is symptomatic of a culture abandoned by God to destruction and a church provoking the Lord with abomination. Greg Bonson was not known for timidity, but he's right. Western civilization was heavily influenced by this holy verdict and by Christianity, and therefore homosexuality was bottled up at the social margins. As Christian culture has begun to wane, however, homosexuality broke the bottle at first slowly and now rapidly. It's remarkable that such a small percentage of the population commands such a prominence and increasing respect. But once Western culture crashed God's gracious sexual barriers and sexual autonomy gained free reign, there have been no impediments to cultural homosexualization." A critical turning point was in the 19th century and the invention of the very terms homosexual and heterosexual. Now, did you know that? Did you know that these terms are fairly recent, historically? Uh, The fact that we even use these terms today, and it seems we must use them, signals a victory for sexual autonomy. These expressions assume that human sexuality is an orientation or an identity. That is, it's a way of being human, often chosen rather than rooted in human ontology itself in many cases. To be homosexual is to be oriented toward a desire of the same sex. To be heterosexual is to be oriented toward desire for the opposite sex. Each is an identity that one uh, is either or adopts in addition to his or her humanity. This identity eventually occupied such a prominent place in the individual life that it colored and governed everything else. Everything is seen through this lens of either homosexuality or heterosexuality. Now, this approach is radically different from the Bible. God made humanity as either man or woman. Full stop. There is no orientation or identity. There's only male or female. It's man and woman's relation to God that shapes everything else, not their sexuality, though, of course, it is very important. Third, there is the cultural problem of what I like to call... Here's a nice, sophisticated expression, but I'll explain it. Hedonic infertility. Hedonic infertility. Well, what's that? Hedonism is broadly defined as the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. Hedonic infertility is the pursuit of pleasure and happiness to the intentional exclusion of children and childbearing. A time cover story, The Child Free Life, I have it right at my house in my library, appeared nine years ago, and if uh, uh, its sequel appeared today, the account would be even more ominous. The article marshaled statistics that the rise in intentional childlessness is, quote, both dramatic and in the scope of our history, quite sudden. In the early 70s, one in ten U.S. women was childless. By 2013, the number was down to 1 in 5. I haven't seen numbers and statistics since then. There are several reasons for this intentional childlessness, but the main problem, according to time, is that children are an impediment to the fulfilled life, where fulfillment is increasingly defined as radical individual autonomy. Hedonism is the philosophy of living life for pleasure, right? So hedonic infertility is its subset. Comprised of those women and men for whom children are a crimp on the pleasure-consumed life. If you live only for pleasure, your own pleasure, children can have no place in your life. But childbearing is a command woven into the creational cosmic account. Then God bless them. We read, of course, in Genesis 1:28. Adam and Eve said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Exercising dominion, it goes on to say. As the hectoring 1970s TV commercials for the new national 55 mile an hour speed limit once stated, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. Well, this command to have children as one is able is the law. This imperative, and that is what it is, flows seamlessly from the previous creation days where the plants and creatures are commanded abundantly to reproduce. Man and woman are no exception. God delights in fruitfulness. He delights in fecundity. He wants his living creation to grow, to reproduce, to fill the earth. You know, ours is a proliferant God who demands proliferance of his creatures. Uh, By the way, this is also one reason that creation supports what we today call the free market. God relishes abundance in creation. God's not a squeamish, small, miserly God. That's not the God of the Bible. Make no mistake, childless marriages are in no way sinful. God alone opens and closes the womb. And as my friend Jennifer Law has pointed out, we may not technologically engineer children as though they were a human right. They are not a human right. They're a gift. But to intentionally refuse to bear children naturally, is to violate the creational command of Genesis 1. Therefore, it is sin. That might not be a popular message, but it is the right message, even though I'm the one saying it. The fourth problem, final problem, is limited almost exclusively to the church. This is the increasingly popular idea that singleness or celibacy is a higher form of spirituality. A misreading, in my view, of Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 7. What's this view? It's the view that if we stay single, we can be closer to God. But if we can't stay single, God permits us to get married, even though that marriage will draw us uh, away from an undivided devotion to the Lord. So all of those who want to be closest to the Lord should never get married. I don't agree with that interpretation of Paul. And I tell you why in the book here, so you're just going to have to read the book here. But for now, just note this. I was uh, speaking several years ago at a, for a fine group in England. And there were a number of um, fine young uh, single adults there. And I was making this point, And uh, they really started pushing back hard at Q&A, which is fine. I don't mind that. But if they push hard, I decided to push hard. Uh, and their attitude was they were very pious and were piously convinced that uh, God was calling them all their lives to be single because they, of course, would be a little better, higher in their spirituality. Uh, to all of these, compared to all of these uh, poor, benighted, unspiritual married people. Uh, didn't quite put it that way, but that's basically what they were saying. Well, so I said, Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. I said, I can see it now. God comes to Adam at creation and says, Adam, I'm going to create from your own body a woman, one like you, yet different. She'll be the most spectacular gift that I can give you apart from me, but whatever you do, don't marry her. Uh, The unmarried state is spiritually superior and this woman that I created will draw you away from me. You see how utterly silly that is Outrageous on the contrary and as hard as it might be to accept the verdict God alone was not sufficient for the man The man needed someone like him and though he was created in God's image He needed someone more like him than God is a creature and God is certainly not a creature So God intentionally created man good, but relationally incomplete. And every male without a wife and female without a husband is relationally incomplete. Even though, I agree, at times it is God's will for them to be that way, as widowers, for example, or as rare gifted celibates. Come to the conclusion. Solution to these problems. Sex as as cultural social construction. Cultural homogenization, uh, second of all. Uh, Homosexualization, I'm sorry, Uh, hedonic infertility, third, and singleness or celibacy as a higher form of spirituality, and many others. What we need is a recovery of a robust doctrine of creation, which the evangelical church has been failing on.